Hi everyone, welcome to Frankston Presbyterian Church Online. It's great to have you uh, join in again today. Let's begin uh, by hearing God call us uh, to worship Him from His Word. Psalm 30, uh, verses 8 to 12. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Let's uh, begin our time in prayer. Oh, Father, we praise you because you are the God of mercy, uh, the one who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have clothed us with blessing, with joy. Oh, Father, we will praise you forever because of your glory and because of your grace. We ask, Father, that this morning as we hear your word, that you would enable us to listen with humility. May your Holy Spirit minister uh, to us powerfully through your word and uh, may he enable us to see the wonderful things that you have have in store for us. Father, we pray that we would see Christ in all his glory as, as all of scripture is about him. And we pray that that would lead us to worship uh, the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we ask it through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we're going to finish off this series in the book of Esther. And uh, as we've been seeing, uh, the book of Esther is about the hiddenness of God. So it persuades us that even though we can't see God, that he is active and working in the world and uh, working for uh, the good of his people and ultimately for his glory. Well, today we're looking at this final section in chapters uh, 8 to 10 of Esther. So if you've got a Bible, um, turn to those uh, chapters. Uh, it's a very long reading. So as we've been doing, we'll read the first chapter, but we'll look at all of the uh, section uh, throughout the sermon. So... Let's begin uh, now reading chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Savan. 
They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of the, each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is God's Word. One of the more exciting elements of a plot in a story or an event is reversal. So, for example, if you follow a sports team, uh, the best and most memorable wins are the great reversals. See, that's, that's the games where your team is so far behind at halftime that it looks like it's all over. And yet in the second half, they do the unexpected. They come back from the dead, as it were, and end up winning in the dying seconds of the game. A great reversal. See, that's the games that you remember. Well, the theme of the last section of the book of Esther is reversal. God's old covenant people were destined for complete annihilation and yet everything ends up being turned around for their blessing. And so we can sum up this last section of the book of Esther, chapters 8 to 10, uh, as a great reversal caused by a great man, which leads to a great celebration. So let's look at those three things. First, we see a great reversal. So we've already seen the beginnings of this reversal with the hanging of Haman, on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. Uh, but that's just the beginning because at the start of chapter 8, uh, King Xerxes gives to Mordecai uh, the, the estate of Haman and, and gives Mordecai the position of Haman. So he makes Mordecai second in command. And at that point, you would almost expect that the story ends with a conclusion and they all lived happily ever after. But this story is far from over because even though wicked Haman is dead, the enemy of the Jews, even though he is dead, his plan isn't. His edict to destroy, kill and annihilate all of the Jews in the Persian Empire, that edict still stood. 
the date was still set and there were many enemies lining up ready to carry it out. And so chapter 8 records uh, Mordecai, the new prime minister, uh, recording a new edict on behalf of the king. And this new edict is a point-by-point reversal of everything that Haman set out in his uh, edict in chapter 3. And you can see that point-by-point reversal if we look at a comparison of these two chapters. So you notice all this repetition. This is the writer's way of conveying that point by point, the evil is being overturned. It's a complete reversal. Now let's just look at three aspects of this reversal, just so we get a real good uh, feel of it. Uh, So first of all, we can see that the content of the edict is a complete reversal. So verse 11 uh, says, The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate, so that's the exact wording from the first edict, the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now, all of this sounds um, very intense, uh, but we need to realize that unlike Haman's edict, this is actually an edict of self-defense. Okay, this is not permission to kill anyone you like. This is permission to only kill those who would otherwise kill them. And as we'll see, there are thousands of enemies ready to attack the Jews. But now, with this new edict, the Jews now have permission uh, to defend themselves. And the other thing we'll notice here is that even though this edict, like the first one, gave them permission to plunder the property of their enemies, we end up seeing that even though the Jews do win this battle, they purposely do not touch the plunder. Uh, In chapter 9, three times it says, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And again, this shows us the way we're supposed to understand uh, the actions of the Jews. See, by refusing to personally prosper in this war, it it showed that uh, they were not enacting any personal vengeance, but were acting that they thought of themselves as agents of justice, acting on behalf of one in authority. And so the edict itself was a complete overturning of that original edict of of, uh, Haman. Uh, Second, though, we see that the response to this new edict is also a a complete reversal. Back in chapter 3, verse 15, when the first edict was written, it said the, the city of Susa was bewildered. But now in chapter 8, verse 15, it says the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. And just as the first edict brought great mourning among the Jews with uh, fasting, weeping and wailing, this new edict is a complete turnaround. See, look at verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king, king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. In fact, just as the first edict gave the enemies of of the Jews the upper hand, so this new edict, it actually results in many becoming allies of the Jews. So at the end of verse 17, it says, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So this is a huge turnabout. 
At the start of the book, being a Jew in the world empire was dangerous. Remember, Esther had to keep her nationality a secret for many years. But now many people of other nationalities are publicly identifying with the people of God. And so we can see that the response to this new edict, it's a complete reversal. And third, the outcome of the new edict is also a complete reversal. And the outcome is recorded there in chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. So you can see it's summed up at the start where it says, On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those destined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. Right, so the outcome of this new edict was a complete turnabout. Uh, what at first seemed to be a guaranteed annihilation ended up being the promotion of the Jews in this empire. And so that's the first thing we see, a great reversal. And that actually has many implications for us today, which we're going to look at in a moment. But before we can see the implications, we first need to see the second thing uh, that this passage teaches us. And that is, we see that this great reversal was caused by a great man. A great man. Now, who is the great man? Well, of course, it's the, the man the king delights to honour. We saw last week, this man, he had his moment in the spotlight where he was being led around the city on a horse with someone before him saying, this is what is done to the man the king delights to honour. Well, now with Haman removed, and uh, Esther's identity revealed, Mordecai, the great man, because of his connection with Esther, he is promoted to second in command. And Mordecai's greatness is one of the focuses of this last section of the book of Esther. And you can see it, first of all, in chapter 8, verse 15. So it says, When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe, of fine linen. And then down in uh, chapter 9, verse 3, uh, it, it says there that all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. So it's Mordecai's elevation to the center of world power that's actually the key to this great victory that the people of God won. And at the very end of this book, if you look at chapter 10, you'll notice it's only three verses long, but it's all about the greatness of Mordecai. It says King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. Now this is quite a surprising ending, mainly because this book has, been come, uh, has come to be known as the Book of Esther. And yet when you read it, 
and you get to the end, you realize that Mordecai is just as central uh, to the story, maybe even more so, especially the way it ends uh, with a reference to his, uh, his greatness. <clears throat> and so the book, it ends with this great reversal, which hinges on the elevation of this great man. And so what is that teaching us today? Well, let's, let's think about Mordecai again. So Mordecai, he was the hated one who evil people plotted against and even obtained authority to publicly execute him. And yet he rises to the position of power and saves his people from the sentence of death. Now, what does that remind you of? Or who does that remind you of? See, the greatness of Mordecai, it's only foreshadowing the the greatness of someone else, someone far greater, who brings a far greater deliverance from evil and death. The greatness of Mordecai foreshadows the greatness of Jesus. And Jesus is not just second in command, but he is first and preeminent over all. And although Mordecai's edict was one of salvation through bloodshed, so Christ's edict is also one of salvation through bloodshed. But instead of gaining freedom by shedding his enemy's blood, Jesus willingly shed his own blood to gain the freedom of his enemies. You know, the Romans 5.10 says, When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son. You see, we were rightly under the sentence of death because of our sin. But on the cross, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sin so that our sentence could be reversed, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be turned from enemies into friends of God. And so now with the coming of Jesus, a new edict is proclaimed throughout the world. It's the edict of the gospel that God is offering terms of peace with his enemies. And so this is the great reversal that the one at the Est of Esther is pointing us to, the reversal that took place at the cross. And just as the elevation of Mordecai guaranteed the, the victory for God's people in that day, so the elevation of Jesus, risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, now seated at God's right hand, that's the guarantee of the final victory that we will have even over death itself. See, it's knowing the greatness of Jesus, knowing that he is in that position of of absolute and ultimate power and authority. That's the guarantee that belonging to him means that you are safe forever. No evil, not even death itself, can ultimately harm you because you're eternally safe in him. So there's a great reversal. It's brought about by a great man. And that leads to a great celebration. And that's the third thing we see in this passage. So it's recorded in chapter 9, verses 20 to 32. Let's just have a look at some of that. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe these days as as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this salvation that, uh, that God brought about in that day, 
uh, Mordecai and Esther, they turn into an annual celebration for the Jews. And uh, down in verse 25, the people to celebrate that the, the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews <clears throat> should come back on his own head. See, it's not the killing that they celebrated, but they celebrated this reversal that all the evil, that everything that Haman tried to do to the people of God, God turned it on its own head. It's the reversal that they celebrate. Now, where does it say that God did this? Where does it say that God rescued them? Well, interestingly, the, the name of this celebration is Purim. Uh, so if you look at verse 26, it says, Therefore these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Now, Pur means the lot. And the lot, um, that means um, like the rolling of a dice or the flipping of a coin. It's basically letting chance determine uh, the outcome. Now, in chapter 3, Haman, in his superstition, he cast the purr, or the lot, um, or rolled the dice, uh, to find out his lucky day to destroy God's people. But that day, that day turned out to be the day of God's people's deliverance uh, and salvation. And so surely by calling this day Purim, all of God's people with a smile on their face, surely they would have been thinking of Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So for all of Haman's scheming, God was working behind the scenes to overrule it all so that everything Haman did to try and destroy God's people ended up being the very thing that led to their blessing. And that right there is a micro version of the big story of what God is doing in the world today. That in the end, because God rules, all that evil can achieve in the end is only the opposite of what it intends. Uh, you know, and it might not look like that when you're in the very middle of the story. I mean, the Jews living under that first edict of Haman's uh, for nine whole months it would not look like God is turning evil into good. Uh, it would have looked like evil was going to win. It would have looked like that they, that they were going to die on a set date. And yet, in the end, when it was all finished, they could look back and see that God had turned that evil on its head. And that's what he is doing in the world today. It doesn't look like that for us because we're still in the middle of the story. But in the end, we'll be able to look back and see what God does to turn every strand of evil on its head. And so as an Old Testament believer, every time they celebrated this annual uh, Feast of Purim, every time that came around and they celebrated um, God's providence, you know, God working all things together for the good of those who love him. But what is at the very heart of this celebration? It's that God, the living God, although hidden, is the God of reversals. <clears throat> That's what they were celebrating. And so this celebration that they had every year, it not only pointed them back to when God brought this great reversal for them, but in that they would have seen a foreshadowing of a final, greater reversal, one that would encompass the whole earth, where all evil will be turned on its head. And so as an Old Testament believer, Every time the Feast of Purim came around, 
and, and they celebrated God's providence, you know, God working all things together for the good of, of those who love him. What was actually at the heart of that celebration? At the heart of it is that the living God, though hidden, is the God of reversal. That behind the scenes, he is working to turn every strand of evil on its head. And so this celebration of Purim, it not only looked back to when they got relief and salvation uh, in the 5th century, but it also looked forward. Because in that, in that event, they would have seen a foreshadowing of a, a day when God will bring a final great reversal to all of the world. Uh, a reversal that will finally turn all evil on its head and all sorrow into joy and all mourning into an eternal celebration for those who belong to him. Now, we don't celebrate the Feast of Purim anymore. Uh, why? Well, because we're not Jews living in the Old Covenant before the coming of Christ. <clears throat> the, the salvation that Purim celebrated was only a shadow of the great reversal that happened at the cross. And so we don't celebrate the shadow in Purim. Instead, we celebrate the fulfillment in the cross of Christ. But the question that we could ask from this is, do you know the joy of Purim? That is, do you know what it is to celebrate the joy and relief of salvation being delivered from the sentence of death? Do you know what that's like? You see, it's only those who have known what it is to be under the sentence of death and yet have been freed from that, who know the, the wonder and joy of salvation. And here's the thing. Every single person is under the sentence of death. Every person is under the sentence of death because we're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. But many refuse to accept that. However, for those who do accept it, who do accept God's verdict of us, and have stood at the mouth of hell, as it were, and have seen what their sins deserve, and yet have embraced the Saviour. They are the ones who know the joy and relief of salvation. And in the end, every single person will face a great reversal. Those who humble themselves now in repentance and faith in Christ will be exalted at the end. But those who continue in proud defiance refusing to accept the saviour that God has provided, they will be humbled in the end. See, the edict is going out now. Be reconciled to God. Become God's friend. Turn from being an enemy to being a friend. Embrace the saviour. And so perhaps there is some of you out there listening today who have never known the joy and relief of salvation. Well, notice verse 27 in chapter 9 that the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them see that you can join in. The invitation is open today for you to come and to join in those who have known the joy and relief of salvation. Come and embrace the Saviour. Come and take hold of by faith the God of reversal, the one who, though he was rich, became poor so that you might become rich in salvation. That though he was righteous, he became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That though he, was, that though he is God's son, he was treated like an enemy at the cross, so that we could become God's children. See, he is the God 
of reversals. So come and know the joy of friendship with the God of reversal. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so conscious of all of the things that are not right in this world. Uh, We are so overwhelmed with the things that we see with our eyes. Uh, We see death reigning. Uh, We see evil prospering. We see suffering. Uh, But yet from this passage, we have this great confidence. We have this assurance that because of the edict of the gospel, that you have provided the answer that you have provided a reversal of all that is wrong. And we thank you that you sent your son into the world to deal with the root cause of all evil and suffering. We thank you that because Jesus died as a sacrifice to pay for our sin, that we even have uh, a victory over death itself. And we thank you because he has risen and he is coming again, that everything will be reversed, that sorrow will give way to endless joy, that there will be no more fighting and no more hate, and no more killing, and no more death. It will be a celebration like no other. And so we pray for uh, us as a church, Lord, in the meantime. Uh, We pray especially for those who are suffering adversity at the moment. We pray for those who are suffering loss or agony of soul. We pray that the great reversal to come would be that ray of light that shines into their darkness, and that leaning on Christ, that they would find that that carries them through Father, we pray that the harder that it is to live in this world, that that might drive us deeper into your grace so that we might be able to testify that it is sufficient for us and that we might know that to have Christ is more than enough. Father, we thank you for the book of Esther. We thank you that we've been able to uh, learn that though you are hidden, that you are working, that you are powerful and that you are bringing a final victory to all of your people, a victory from the sentence of death, that we might live and reign with Christ forever. And for this we are so grateful and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 3 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.